everyone. Welcome back to Tales from the Teacher's Lounge. This has been just really fun and exciting, and I'm really excited about today's episode. John Winmuller from Washington Improv Theater is joining us. John loves improv. I mean, he loves it. He has over a decade of experience teaching and performing, and he has led sold-out workshops at improv festivals and camps across the United States. He teaches, he coaches, he performs with both the Washington Improv Theater and the Baltimore Improv Group. He currently performs with the main stage ensemble King Bee with Wit and Lecker with Big, along with numerous side projects, Flannel Club, JK, Local Spot, Remote Possibilities, and Unscripted. John is performing in festivals across the U.S. and is one of the founders and organizers of the District Improv Festival. On a personal note, I love when I get to talk to John. He is one of the few people I can just talk inside baseball with for hours and hours and hours. He is super smart. He knows so much, and it's just always a pleasure to talk with him. You may hear a few times rustling of papers and a pen clicking back and forth. That's because the sound was captured in one file versus two different files, and it wasn't letting me cut it out. So what you're hearing is me furiously writing down notes and ideas as I talk to John. He's just always inspiring me. Such a pleasure. I'm so excited. If after this episode you want to reach out to John, he's on Facebook at John, J-O-H-N, so that's J-O-H-N, dot Windmuller, W-I-N-D-M-U-E-L-L-E-R. He's also on Twitter at J-W-I-N-D-M, and you can go to the WIT website at witwitdc.org. We'll also have this in the comment sections of the podcast and on social media. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy John Winmuller. Let's just start with how you became a teacher and like what inspired you to become a teacher. Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, let's. I was. Um, I fell in love with improv. I think that's the short. The short of it is that I love doing improv, and I already was a teacher, just not of improv. So I knew that I loved teaching, just as an act in and of itself, and then. When I fell in love with improv, it sort of uh, the two came together for that. It actually was uh, the gradual slip into it for me. At first, was I was doing. I'm actually trying to put. Yeah, I actually started poaching improv of a PhD in conflict analysis and resolution, and I was a full-time university professor. And I started poaching improv exercises for my grad courses and particularly in the communication classes and the teaching folks to be mediators because there's so many great exercises about listening and whatnot for it. And so I started poaching exercises from improv that I had my grad students doing. And then uh, I started teaching. I I had an option to TA uh, through Washington Improv Theater. So I took that and I was off and running. So that actually uh, brings me to a question that I have for uh, on there is when you started your teaching of improv, were you given a curriculum? And it sounds like absolutely if you started with Washington Improv Theater. Yes and uh, no. So I, my first time TAing, I TAed in, uh, there was a, a mix-up. And this, was, this would not occur now at WIT, uh, but uh, there was a bit of a mix-up where I ended up being inadvertently being a TA in two different sections of it. And I was TAing both level one, and then it was called 1A, uh, and also uh, doing what was then level four, now level five, which is Herald. So I was, I was TAing on both ends of things on it. And it was a radically different uh, introduction for both because level one then, when I had a very clear curriculum and we were going through, and as a TA, my job was to assist and also to write up the summaries afterwards, which is a good way to sort of create your own notes about what uh, the exercises are and their takeaway points. And then for the Herald class, um, there's there's less of a clear curriculum for it. And in particular, uh, the person that I was TAing in under then got into some health problems, and I ended up running a good portion of the class. Again, would not happen now at, at WIT. Um, a totally different curriculum, completely different uh, manager of training and teaching and whatnot. But, yeah, that was the, the end of it. So you kind of got thrown into the fire there and, I did. and all that kind of stuff. So when you got thrown into the fire with that, did you kind of just do the curriculum on the fly or did you have people you could go to or were you just kind of? 
Well, with, uh, with Harold, I kind of, I pretty much figured it out on my own as I was going for that. Uh, so the nice thing for that is it sort of made sense to me that Harold sort of presents its own natural curriculum. And it, assuming that it's, at least for wit, it's taught near the end. It can be taught earlier for different pedagogical reasons, but it's taught at the end. So for there, it's, uh, they know a lot of the core work for how to do good skill, do scenes, but still it sort of presents like how do you do first beat scenes, um, particularly from if you have an opening that doesn't suggest premise. So how do you do more organic exploratory first beat scenes? And then so you have one or two classes on that, and then you have one or two classes on great. Now we're going to learn about second beat scenes and how do you figure out what you're taking from the first beat to the second beat and being able to do that. And then there's a class, obviously some classes that need to be done on third beat for getting the whole sort of pacing and speed together. Then there's the group games, which is sort of playing into that. And then there's opening. So there's sort of, it naturally suggested an order to things. I think if I had to have come up with the curriculum for Harold, it was a, the format itself suggested some structure, which was good. Great. Uh, and I think it helped that I'd been teaching for a long time before that I'd been a university professor for 14 years. And then I had been a, um, before that in between my junior or sorry, my, um, in between uh, my junior and senior years for that? No, it was at Florida State. Actually, I just between became a, before I became a grad student, between my bachelor's and master's degree, I'd gotten uh, a gig doing work as a computer trainer, so teaching people to use Microsoft Word and whatnot. And the person who taught that was, his actually his background was a PhD in adult education. And so I learned a bunch about how do you teach adults to do things. And so that's, I think, where I learned a lot about just how to teach and coming from that. I also have a lot of that academic background, which also I felt like it really helps bridge that. Um, but for those who don't have that kind of background, mm-hmm. what are some what are some ways that they can? Because obviously you already had skills in place with the adult learners, and the, what are some of the challenges you think adult learners have? I guess uh, that you already knew coming in because you had been doing so much uh, teaching prior to that. That perhaps someone who doesn't have that kind of background um who's just now teaching improv i'd say some of the big things are um meet them where they're at that there's that idea that the nerdy term would be scaffolding their existing knowledge to to build out from that Uh, so uh, meet them where they're at is a really important part of it i bring that into my coaching too that one of the first things i want to do is, is sort of see where they are and get to know what their perspectives and expectations are for that another part of it is an idea about um that a couple of different ones uh, that um, your how you feel about the topic matters to share your passion. That sort of one thing that comes up over and over in evaluations for faculty, for example, of uh, universities. So they're curious about what links well with the overall student satisfaction of a course. And one of the highest correlates of it is not actually teacher uh, subject area expertise as much as it is uh, the professor, uh, would they strongly agree with the statement that the professor has a great deal of passion for the topic? And so, so that's important. You can't, uh, don't feel bad about hiding how enthusiastic you are about it. And likewise, know that if you're feeling burned out and you're just going, yeah, man, it's whatever, it's improv, or I don't like improv today, that doesn't work. Uh, so um, bring that passion to what you're doing is important. The idea of... Um, more is not always more. And I struggle with this because I always want to like, like, oh, I want to teach the whole thing. But actually that uh, sometimes at some point there's a, the, the curve goes the other way on the amount of content you try to stuff in. Eventually they start retaining less. And so uh, if you return like this much, uh, now, sorry, it's over, over audio. So I don't know uh, if it's, um, if you, if you, let's say weirdly enough, if this is a really nerdy way, if, if, content is cubes and you can give them 10 cubes of content or eight cubes of content. Sometimes they'll actually remember more if you do eight cubes of content than 10, that at some point there is a diminishing, not just diminishing return, but it actually goes the other way. So keep that in mind uh, for it. Uh, And then there's getting some wisdom and experience for what kind of notes will work for people, sort of knowing that, uh, the more receptive someone is about getting feedback, the better. So it helps me to know what feedback people want to get uh, so that that really is a great way to, it's going to be stickier that way. Do you, uh, then, um, sorry, yep. no, I was going to, yeah. I just kind of want to fall on that for a second uh, because the notes feedback, um, are you just kind of feeling them out with, so just let's take our classroom and not a coaching scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a classroom with the notes feedback, 
are you sussing out how much you can do based on how they're um, responding to your feedback? Or are you physically asking, you know, because sometimes they don't know what they don't know. Right. Um, and I, I know that sometimes I will give a note and I can physically see a student start to like crawl back into their shell. And I'm like, oh, they're not ready for that, you know, approach yet. Let me pull back and then I will sort of, you know, refigure how I'm going to give that student their note versus another student who's like just come at me. Um, so, yeah, so let's land on feedback a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think I mean, you're exactly getting the sort of there's outside of the student, there's the whole level that they're in. So my like what feedback for level one is very different for feedback for level five on it like that. I'm, I'm much more likely by level five to be sharing with them what they, what they don't know that they don't know. And so uh, tougher notes in that regard. Uh, but at the same, so there's, there's sort of that objective, like where we are in the curriculum and what expectations are around that. And so hopefully also another thing that they're learning in the curriculum is learning to take notes that, that, that hopefully that itself is a skill and hopefully they, they recognize that's something they should be learning. Another part of it is, uh, if, if I can ask them what they want feedback on, that's ideal. But then as we go higher in the levels to also be able to share what they don't know, they don't know. And in which case, sometimes I have to give them a note that they weren't expecting uh, and that I know will be more difficult and exactly like you were observing, just how are they taking it and knowing do I need to give them more encouragement to be able to go along with that and things like that and being able to play it off. Um, I think I like being self-deprecating. Like I love to like, oh man, I've got to be an asshole here and sort of go like that and be able to, to do that is really useful as well. And to really, I'm the first one to share all of my struggles in improv and where it went. I, I sure didn't love it at the time, but I love as a teacher now that I can fall back on like for the story that it took me um, several auditions before I made it onto a Herald team. I was not one of the people who jumped right in the classes. And so be able to sort of talk about, oh, man, I, let me tell you about some of my terrible habits and sort of be able to do that as a way to sort of share folks. And again, it's this idea of uh, putting them in a growth mindset and recognizing that it's a skill and not a trait. People don't aren't sort of born natural improvisers. And so how how we can learn about that. So, yeah, yeah I um, I do the self-deprecating thing a lot. <laughs> well. <laughs> or or the all right, here comes asshole Lauren. Let's get never know. Let's get yeah. out. <laughs> like, step back there for a second. Where you are obviously has a very set. Uh, what class are you teaching right now, actually? I'm teaching. Actually, I'm off this term. It's exciting. Okay. Uh, but I'm normally I well. I'm teaching regularly. I do teach, run the applied improv training. So I teach, I'm, I'm, I'm on a weekly basis teaching folks who have no improv experience and who, unlike improv students, many don't want to be there, like teaching them that, that one thing. So that's one part of it. And then these days I usually teach either level four or level five at WIT. So level four is an advanced scene work course and level five is Herald. It's the final, the capstone uh, course in it. And usually here I go back and forth between the, the two sort of, and by levels four and five, the curriculum is less, uh, rig- not less rigorous, but it's less. By level four and five, I have core competencies I know I need to hit. I know they need to be able to do certain things that's in the curriculum. But as a level five, I can change the order and move it around to fit where the class is. And level five, I'm far more likely, um, the first time I'll start level five, and to a degree I do this in level four also, I'll just have them like great do 10 minutes of open scenes for me go and to sort of take notes on where the class is as a whole and to do some adjustments as a sort of from there on from it. Whereas if I'm teaching level one at this point and on a daily basis, I know what the exercises are. I know what the key takeaway points are and things like that. I'm not teaching very many level one courses anymore because I'm doing that already with the applied improv. And so that's a level one's exhausting because it's it's so much about bringing the energy there and the enthusiasm and whatnot. And level five, it's not that that's not also still important, but there's a little bit less of jumping around saying, fall in love with improv. Um, it's a little bit more of having to jump around every now and then and go, remember why you fell in love with improv, because that starts to be, uh, particularly level four, the awkward tween years of improv where suddenly uh, all the there are no mistakes that now – Maybe there are no mistakes, but there's some profoundly less efficient moves than others and uh, and being able to explain that. And so it takes away some of the I just get to get up, get on there on stage and do whatever the hell I want. 
that starts to not work as well. And so uh, that can be a little bit tough. Right. So having to, to refall in love. Um, so when you, um, so who, deve- so the core competence, I think that's really, you touch on core competencies, which to me is super important um, because I'm, I th- I'm not sure that, you know, sometimes like you had wit, right? Like you jumped in right. and there was something already created and that was kind of there for you. Not everybody has that, you know, has a theater that is our, they may be developing a theater in the works right now or right. a bunch of people got together and were like, we love this. How do we go about doing this? So when you are developing core competencies, do you have a sort of kind of sit down and go, okay, so like in level one, it would be, you know, sort of that whole, like, for me at least, it's getting to be like, yes, and taking care of your partner. Um, right. And then there's some actual skill sets in there. And like you said, when we get to Harold, now it is, can, the, the outcome is, can you go from start to finish with full Harold without being right. like, ah, where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Plus right. the art itself. Right. Um, so, did, so obviously, was that that was obviously provided? Uh, actually, I came. I love where I came in on wit's development because I came in where wit was just. It already had a program that had been successful for a good amount of times, but it's gone through just profound growth since I started there. So when I was teaching, there wasn't clear competencies listed at the end of every uh, level. Instead, it was here are the exercises we run, and. Okay. And there was clearly some thought behind where those exercises were, but they weren't articulated necessarily in competencies in that point. And it wasn't sort of clear on where it built up on the next level. So where's the next level going to pick up? So I've been at WIT when it's sort of gone through the evolution of solidifying and clarifying what the competencies are for the level, where they took folks who, were, who had a history of teaching the different levels and talk about what are the core things that people need to be able to do at the end of years, and then also be able to say, one of the most useful discussions were if you're on level, say, teaching level four, where's a problem? If students can't already do X and it's causing a problem where you have to go back, what is that thing they're not able to do? So that can trickle back down the curriculum and be able to do it. So for uh, someone who doesn't necessarily have, um, who's maybe building their curriculum from scratch, a, so a great thing to think about then would be what are, if this, to first define sort of what level they're looking at, right? So if they're working with, right. um, starter you know just people who are completely new versus someone who's been in it for a little bit right and then what they want at the end so i so correct me if i'm wrong but if it, maybe a good approach then would be like what is the outcome i want and then work backwards toward that yeah that, that's certainly the way i like to think about it i think that's the really the, the way to go and then i find it really useful to think uh in terms of uh there's the, the formula KSAs, knowledge plus skills equals abilities. So art- articulate what you want to be able to see them do. So the ability you want them to be able to and demonstrate. And then think about what is the knowledge and the skills that have to go into that. So the, the knowledge is what do they need to be able to understand, like to understand what is a comedic premise or to be able to understand the concept of heightening is different from the ability to be able to do that on the spot. There's some skills to that as, as well. And so to be able to sort of figure out what kind of knowledge and skills will get that ability and then figure out where in the curriculum it goes, it goes back. But I do think if I'm, if I'm starting a theater and I'm starting a training program, I first think what what do I want the show? What do I want to show for my graduating cohort to look like in the last class, and then to work back and figure out what fits in there? Because you also coach, correct? Yep. Okay. So when you coach, are um, are you being assigned to a team or are teams approaching you? Uh, both. Um, I was a Herald coach for I guess, two and a half years, going on three years, and for there, when you're uh, you're a, you're assigned a team slash um, when you've been, I often got to, I would be in the um, audition room and also sort of along with the other coaches uh, sort of decide along with the artistic director, not just who makes it, but then sort of have this discussion, be part of the discussion about where play, which teams players should land on. So got to play an active role in casting that that varies depending on the Herald cycle and the experience of the coach. Uh, and then there's also, um, and the first time I actually became our coach, I just got plopped on a pre-existing team. So that was there. So that that varies. But as a Herald coach, I also had it's called a coach. But I, for me, the distinction is really more of a director because uh, you have the ability to to 
remove people from the troop, which is something that generally I don't think of a coach as something to be able to do. For me, that's the distinction. I think um, Jimmy Cran just had an article where he listed if you have a coach, one, one way to remove a person from a tree, team is from a coach. And I remember thinking, like, what the hell? Like, no, if I'm brought in as a, for an independent troop as a coach, my job is not to make uh, choices about who is not and is and is not on that cast. I will talk with them about if they're bringing new people on who I think where I think the gaps might be or what they should look for in folks that might sit in on it. But it's not my unless the team really asks me to do it. That's that's odd to, to have that role. But on Herald teams where it's part of the theater and it's meant to be sort of an incubation or a farm league, then that's a way to uh, to be able to do that. Uh, and then for indie troops, I, I play that role also. Um, so, um, yeah, that's the, the where I go for that. When you come in for coaching, you kind of want to see where they are and what their expectations yep. are. You're obviously having that conversation with them. So, yep. um, and it's usually, I, usually it depends. Sometimes they want me to do specific things with them, like, hey, here's what we want to we work on. We know, or we even we chose you as a coach because we know this is something that you're really great at doing. Uh, or they just say, we don't know what we want. We don't know what we don't know. Tell us, and then be able to, to see what they're doing, where they're at, and then make that judgment. So when you do that, I feel like that would then you sort of then lean on your own personal philosophy and approach to improv and to teaching. Um, so do you do you have have you verbalized what your personal philosophy to teaching and coaching is yet? Sure. Um, I think uh, it will be I, I let them know that I'm that my job is first and foremost to help them accomplish what they want to accomplish, uh, but that I um, am happy to, to interject as much as I can. Um I let them know that uh, there's a, my sort of like introduction to, I'd sort of do a, I'm getting to know you, here's a few things to know about me. And so I'll, it's like logistical stuff, like I talk way too fast and I don't mind if anyone says, John, shut up, what the hell did you just say? Fine with that. Uh, I let them know that they can email me questions at any time whatsoever, that that's part of what I think of myself as a coach and to be able to do and something like that. And that also if they want to raise issues about what they would really like to see worked on in the troop, but they want that to be confidential, so they don't that, that that's fine as well. So if if there's a problem, like oh, I'm having this as an issue, or this I'm having figuring out how to work with this player, I don't out them about that. I just I I'm here to, to listen about that. I also, as an aside, I don't say that I'm not I'm not trying to support a lot of back channel communication through the right. code. <laughs> I don't want to do that, but that 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 is a something that I'm happy to hear and work with. That uh, I let them know that I dearly love this, and that my goal is for them to be um, to be the greatest improv troupe in the country. That that's sort of like I'm I am working towards that, and I think that's partly just a fit for me as a coach. I don't I'm not a good fit for a troupe that we're a friend troupe. We just like to goof around, like we just we need someone to sort of hurt us to make sure we start up. That's not uh, my favorite thing to do as a coach, and. It also doesn't, I mean, there's a sort of a rate, and I mean, it's just the, econ- the economics of the area. Like, if that's what they want as a coach, they can get a lot cheaper coaches than me to be able to do the same thing. So that doesn't, that, it rarely pans out that I get brought in for, for that, in that situation. Um, and yeah, that I'll do that. My, my favorite way is to just have them run, uh, let, have them run a show for me, run their typical show. I'll take notes about here's what I see to work on. I share with them what my notes or I don't hold it in front of them, but I say, like, I'm scribbling notes. Like, here's what I saw that I thought worked really well. Here's what I saw where they were struggling. I don't know yet if that was just if that was just this one. I only got to show this, see this one show of you. If this is a pattern or not, but here's some things that I want to work on now as a result uh, of that. And so I'm, I try to be as transparent as I can about here's what I'm working on. And certainly for every the start of every session, I say, Here's what I want to work on for this. Here's, here's the skills I want to work on for this. If they, if I just saw one of their recent performances, either in person or they sent me the video of it, I'll say what in their show made me want to work on that, and then do that. And then at the end, say, okay, how did that feel? What did what did you get out of that? So, yeah. okay, um, I want I have I want to go back really quickly to when you're talking about because I think there's a difference between when you're coaching versus when you're teaching, and a a, a student or a player coming up to you and saying, hey, I'm really struggling being on stage with this other player performer. Um, I want to put on our teacher hats for a second yep. and deal with that because I think that uh, can come up in a classroom a lot where there might be a student who, for whatever reason, um, 
other students, you can see that when like two people up and that person jumps up, there's a little bit of a slower standing yep. to join that person. So um, how do you handle those kind of situations? Um, I try to give some version of this speech sometime, um, particularly if it's uh, levels like three to five, the we all suck right now. That I, I, I know that sounds an odd thing to do it, but uh, something that I, I like thinking of improv in terms of the long game. It, the seven-year point keeps coming up for folks of like, here's when I started feeling like, all right, I'm competent at this. I can do this. So, and that I also think that there's a common stage at the, the two-year point of the, the asshole point where everyone thinks they've figured it out and they're insufferable <laughs> and it's unavoidable. And uh, uh, so that, that's part of it. And so part of it is to just uh, get more of a journeyman view of it that you might be able to do some things well right now, but no one one to two years into their improv is good at improv. That just doesn't happen. And so because part of it is to address the idea that oh, this person's terrible. And we're like, we're all terrible. Like we, let's have fun. We all suck. Let's work on getting uh, better. And again, that can, that sounds so antithetical to improv and celebration, but it's the tone in which it's done and sort of this fun way to be able to explore together. And then say, if, and if you're having struggle of working with someone, that is the greatest gift right now, because uh, either one of things or two things are true. Either uh, one, uh, it's that they, it's not actually them, it's you, uh, and that that's what's going on, which could absolutely be the case, or two, um, that nope, that they're doing something really wonky and wrong, and they just gave you a great chance to work on it. That Let's know that I love playing with beginning improvisers because it really helps me build my skill, so that that's a really useful thing. So you'd be able to treat that as a, as a gift, so that that's a really useful learning experience. Okay, cool. Um, and at the same time, acknowledge... But I've been there with the frustration. Like I, I, I right. get that I've been there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's. Um, I think that's. Uh, I think that's super, super helpful. Um, unless but, it's. Uh, I, I would say one caveat. Unless it's this person makes me feel unsafe. Right. Or this one thing. Unless they're unsafe, harassing, racist. You know. Right. That's right. a whole different. Yeah. Let's let's go down that rabbit hole for a bit then, because I think. Uh, again, you have the um, you have the experience in an academic environment and all this teaching behind you that you probably had had to deal with that anyways, or at least were given some tools to deal with that. Some people who strictly come from improv who then fall into teaching may not have that. So if a right. student comes to you on the side and is like, "This student makes me feel unsafe, uncomfortable," da 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 da. One, what is that conversation you have with the student who approached you? And mm-hmm. two, how do you then handle that situation? Um, I first just say that I'm very sorry you're having that experience. Improv should never, uh, it's the, to not quote it, you don't have permission to make improv feel bad about yourself. So that, that that's wrong. And things are broken. It should not make you feel that way. I'm terribly sorry. We're, let's figure this out. So just let them know um, that I take it seriously and I'm on their side and we're going to figure this out. So that's step one. Uh, the next is to talk specifically about, if I can, what are some of the behaviors that really cause that to see? So sort of like, what are, tell me some concrete examples and stories so that I can figure out where and we can strategize together. What are ways that um, we can think about being able to do that? And that I, as an instructor, if I missed stepping into a scene where I should have, what can I do about that? Uh, so being able to, to do work with that. Uh, I also, I bring it up in class. I call out if there's um, racism that comes out, for example, or there's physical force. So early on, I'll actually teach this already in level one, even though I don't think it's part of the curriculum at the, but I just, if it's any group that I don't think has learned, if I ever see one person using any kind of physical force with another person, I'll pause and say, oh, so I saw this. Like, have you all done stage combat? Probably not. So let me show you a couple of things about stage combat, which is kind of fun. So like if I'm, you know, how, what does a, a slap look like? Because it teaches a nice thing about how you think about blocking for that and it's making the noise. And then I get to the point of if you were doing someone, if so you know, don't do this in your scenes. But if you're curious, if you see two improvisers and it looks like one's choking the other, here's how the stage combat of a choke looks like where like I'm not going to, I don't have, even have them demonstrate this because I don't know if it's going to trigger something for someone. Uh, but still I have one volunteer like, 
put their hands on the way it works is if you're choking me, I have my hands around your wrists and I'm the one who's actually moving your hands as it moves to show that that's the case. And then I explain, um, there's, uh, now that escape the room is popular. I kind of, this, <laughs> if you, if I, escape the room has this note. If you have to use, you shouldn't have to use your any more force than you could do with one finger, like to push, I shouldn't take that. And likewise, I should never, I never with my scene partners, have more force than I would do with one, one finger. So if I'm coming at to push my seat, if it looks like I'm they, they're watching King B, one of my ensembles, and it looks like I'm, I'm pushing another player, actually what they feel is I push them, like my hands are just barely on them, and I'm curious to see, like they know I expect them to go over, but if they at all push back the moment, I don't. Uh, and so just being able to show like, so this whole idea of there's never more than, and then say, don't do that. Like you haven't, troops that do that learn together how to do stage combat, so don't do that. But even know that when you're playing with the others, if you have more than a finger's worth of force on someone, don't. Uh, and I remind and I listen to like, and I have glasses, and you should know that people who have glasses hate it if you're messing with the glass. Like, just, like, don't. And so I just sort of do this as a quick, like, here's a weird introduction to stage combat, not because I want you to do it, but to appreciate that if you're watching troops go around tumbling and whatnot with each other, that if they're doing it right, it's probably not what you're thinking of when you see it on there. It's a bit of an illusion, and for them to have that appreciation for it. So like that sort of physical grappling for it, for being able to do that. And then if it's um, racism or sexism, uh, I, I love, it's actually easier in improv than the academic community because there you can say, look, if you want the audience to laugh, don't punch down. And so being able to have the punch down conversation and if a rich billionaire slips on a banana on his yacht, that's hilarious. If um, a, 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 a woman who's coming who is, tired and exhausted and she's been discriminated against all day and she's walking home to her children and she slips on a banana that is not funny and you look like an asshole if you're the one who's laughing or making that funny so don't so even if if you're secretly a racist know that you can't do that it's not going to work well here like i can't so um, keep your racism you to, secret right you don't get to be a good you, you go to, you can't be a good racist and a good comic because it doesn't work well it just doesn't it doesn't play well so uh, but consider not being one. And <laughs> right. Uh, so I my my philosophy is, is very much from like, see, if you see something, say something uh-huh. right, right, like right away. Uh, so I don't I personally don't let a scene go the whole way. Like I stop it right away uh-huh. and have that conversation. Is that what you're also doing? It depends on the. It depends on the degree of it, on the time. Okay. If it's if it's flat out, then go. And sometimes I will just like, oh, I'm going to save you. And then I'll, I'll often again on the on the asshole. I'm like, man, I just called it because I know I've been in a scene where it's like, oh man, the game of this is built on racism. But I know I'm supposed to keep playing this and heightening this. But am I supposed to heighten that I'm a racist? This feels terrible. And I don't know if you were going through that, but if you were, I just wanted to rescue okay. you and be able to do that. So yeah, I'm often will. I'm pretty comfortable talking about it because. At the background and conflict resolution, the, the last thing I was doing in academia was running dialogues on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination in '68, and through inner city Baltimore and doing the end. So, yeah, uh, that was and, and all around it. So that became a huge. Uh, I'm, I'm comfortable having that conversation, and I and I I I think part's just if you have this like I'm going to bring up this very delicate topic. I feel nervous, but you make everyone else nervous as opposed to, hey, let's talk about this. I also, it comes up for me because if I'm teaching, I usually have a, uh, here's, if this is, this doesn't happen in early level classes because I don't, I don't do this in earlier level classes, but let's say I'm level four or five, I'll do that. I'm going to try to be really clear when I'm doing, here's the general com- common wisdom of improv and here's, you're getting John's angle from it and okay. to sort of make that as a caveat. And so one of the things that I do as a caveat for me is, um, I have a strong bias against scene partners endowing uh, uh, players and scenes endowing their scene partners as a gender or race other than their scene partner's gender or race, unless it would clearly call for the scene. So if it's grandma and a man walks in, I'm going to identify them. That's that's grandma. But if my scene partner walks in and there's no reason whatsoever for them to be the gender or race other than what they are. Don't so make the bias to to really be towards that because it way a lot of I, whenever I see that happen um, it has this terrible dynamic of someone who's suddenly cast in the oh wait I'm supposed to be a woman who wasn't expecting it plays out all these bizarre gender stereotypes as it because they're 
I guess it's important. Normally, when you get an endowment, you want to honor that endowment by really showing it. So it's it's an understandable instinct, but it comes out in not awesome ways often. Uh, so that that happens. It also happens that implicit bias comes out. So more often than not, when I see it, it's for example, someone walks in as a doctor and they're endowed as a man, even if the person playing it is a woman, and things like like that. So I have that that bias, and so I just say. I let them know, like, I'm not going to stop you in the middle of the scene if you don't, but but I have that suggestion. But then I also introduce, by introducing that, I introduce, I don't say it, but I also introduce that notion that uh, all theater is political. And so it's impossible to not have that in mind. So the very fact that I'm raising that as a, a like, a, why I have a bias towards people uh, or leaning into playing their, their gender is part of it. So, yeah. Right. Um, I find I also will give the note uh, sometimes... Um, people will go for the color of the skin or this, and it's just lazy improv. So I yeah. sort of, yeah, it's the low-hanging fruit, not playing from the top of your intelligence kind of uh, conversation that we also end up having. Um, I, I had a very interesting conversation about accents recently. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I find I fall on the th- side of I'm comfortable doing accents of like European or Eastern European because Mm. they match the color of my skin. But when I find someone who is white all of a sudden trying to put on a Chinese accent or whatnot, they don't match and it, I find it to be somewhat cringeworthy. Um, But I've had some students sort of push back and be like, yeah, but if we're allowed to do accents, so I'm kind of been like, giving, well, let's not do that, let's not do that, right? Or or let's, you know, like, it's one thing when I have a a Filipino student embodying his grandmother to the full effect, right? But that's his experience. Right. Right. Versus someone who then comes in and is, like, in a Chinese restaurant and they're just doing every um, trope, you know, about stereotype about Chinese people, that to me are two different scenes. Mm-hmm. One, I would not recommend doing. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely the case. And when people get pushed back, I normally say, it seems like you want a simple set of rules for this, and they are not, because context matters. And so, yeah, and being able to, to sort of explain that that's the case, I can just give you this note. You're right, you might... It might be that that I'm saying that this might come across as, as stereotypical or racist, and you might say, but it doesn't to me. Who are you to judge? I'd say, right, but I'm just giving you this note. You can go out and do that, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't sort of give you the, my experience on that. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's where it goes. Do you have a pass or fail policy? Uh, just that there are, I mean, there are standards about whether or not every at the end of every class uh, when we fill out our we have our Google Docs that we have for all of the, the, the students uh, from that are shared with the director of classes. Uh, then we make notes of do they pass or fail is noted on that and the reason why um, it can be. And it's sometimes it's not just fail, but it's it's fail and go back to a level. Like, like they're missing, they should go back to this. And it's ultimately up to the level, to the, um, the head of the classes program, which for us is Jonathan Murphy, uh, whether or not they they're going to push them back a level even, or just repeat, but as a way to do that, I believe uh, right now that I think if you have to repeat a class, that's done at a discounted rate. I, I feel like that's the case. Um, I'm, I'm not positive. I get to say not my problem on that. Like right. knowing <laughs> the, the money I'm part of that is, uh, but that, that that's the, the, an option for them like that, but definitely they can get sent back like that. And it gets, um, one nice thing is that it gets pushback from if someone gets advanced to another level, then we kind of say like, how did this person get to my, get into this class that so they can look back and start seeing like, what was the progression? So Jonathan can look back and see like, Hey, this student came and seemed like they couldn't do these things. Did you also see that? Or how did this student advance? So, um, have you ever not advanced a student mm-hmm. and how did you yes. handle that? Yep. So let's start there. Uh, I, for me, it's a failure if it's a surprise to the student that they're not being advanced. Or if okay. it seems like it's coming out of nowhere, like you did it wrong. Uh, so it's uh, this, the, the sooner that I see a student that I, that I actually think, hey, this is a student that might not advance, to have a private conversation about like, hey, I'm worried about, so like here's some of the core skills. It's like you're missing them. Like I want to make sure 
uh, you know, we need to get that to get through this core to be able to go on to the next level. So what are some, how can we figure out some ways to work on that? And so it should not be a surprise to them that this is a, an issue for them like that. Yeah. Okay. And so, then go ahead. Yeah. And then, and then figure out you know, how we're going to do that and, and not just have that and, and not enough to just have that one conversation. It shouldn't be right. like, well, I know you raised it once and then I didn't know to then give them feedback uh, for that. So what then are, um, this is a subjective right. you know, art. However, um, I think we can all agree that there's certain core competencies. So are you using specific metrics in place uh, or is it just based on what you know was supposed to be laid in the classes, the foundations that were supposed to be laid prior to coming to you? Um, so because when you go to not pass a student, uh, do you have to justify to your director of classes Here's here's the metrics they did not hit. Does that make sense? It might, yeah, it might be at this point levels one to three. They might have a rubric they're looking at. They can actually mark it off on, but at okay. least on notes on notes that it has to be for me right now. Of level uh, level five is quirky because how do you not advance someone from level five? There's not exactly a like, and then you receive the certificate at the end, but. Um, you can suggest that they retake the class or that they would be benefit from that, and here's why. Um, and so for levels uh, four, for example, there, to be able to say, like, um, frequent listening errors uh, that that's going on or um, is uh, pushes scenes and, and seems uh, unable to stop, like that, that seems unable to recognize that and to work on it, so that that becomes part of it. Uh, because sometimes there's this odd thing where it's a student who, uh, well, this student has a habit of, let's say, pushing scenes uh, at the top, and then be able to say it's not enough to hold them back from the next level, but they know they need to work on it, and they've been advised that they need to work on that. So is one thing that helps is that then when that next level comes up, they can look at the prior term and see, like, if, if the next teacher says, yeah, it's pushing scenes and has an easier time, like, nope, that's been brought up before. They were told that if they keep doing it, that's going to be an issue for advancement. So to be able to do that. I, th- so I think our, it's feedback no, early and often, yeah. But it's not a here's the checklist per se. Okay. Uh, it could be there are the list of competencies. So I could pull out the list of competencies for Harold in order to be able to do that, uh, to be able to show them where that goes for Okay. Them. Right now, I don't think the competencies are sh- – uh, if I'm dictator for the day, students are shown the competencies on day one and so that that's not surprising come day I don't know if that's actually always done right now because in part the competencies I think were written more for instructors than they were for students and okay. so that would be another way to do that but in a I think an ideal thing you do that so if I'm teaching at the university and I'm giving an assignment I give them the grading rubric beforehand so they know at the end what it's going to be evaluated on and that's a useful thing uh, so I think that's let's, ideal let's define rubric for those who are not maybe sure. in uh, academic uh, so right on one thing on one on the the column going down are the different skills you want to be able to have. So uh, is able to uh, to hear and incorporate what the scene partner does. Two is um, able to recognize core premise and height. Just examples of like skills. And so that's on one. And on the other side, there's levels. Let's say uh, one being does not demonstrate at all. Five being nails it like perfect. And in a really good rubric, what you have is a sample of those where it's filled in for what does that look like. So what does a one look like? What does a five look like? Or, or that that's a really fleshed out, well done rubric. You can just have a like like uh, does uh, uh, is able to rec- is able to uh, good listening is able to hear and incorporate what the, what their scene partners uh, give as gifts. Then you could just have one to five. It'd be nice if you gave examples for that, but at least just to have that as a scale. Uh, it's helpful uh, if you have a curriculum that a lot of different teachers are doing it to sort of be able to have a conversation about how does a five look like? What does a one look like? That that is the ideal sort of the the golden the gold standard of rubrics is that it's all filled out for what does that look like? Cool. Um, thank you. So um, how about as a teacher yourself, how are you prog- how are you monitoring your own progress as a teacher? Are you required are, are students required to fill out evaluations, yep. um, surveys, those kind of things? And then how are those uh, then present it back to you. Uh, it, students fill out evaluations after every class, and then we get to see what those evaluations are. It's anonymous. We use SurveyMonkey uh, for, to be able to do that and get to hear back on what the students liked. It's um, 
uh, listing what they loved and didn't love about the, the course that I had. Uh, and uh, yeah. Have you ever uh, had an evaluation um, where you were surprised about what people were seeing from you? Like, because sometimes the way we think we're being versus the way we're being, yep. right, is totally different. Uh, so do you, do you have any times when you were like, oh, I didn't realize? Uh, let's see. I, um, where was one? Oh, I did. Uh, actually, this was from a more recent one for Harold. It's interesting for Harold coaching. The whereas uh, Harold coaches get to fire uh, Harold players, as it were, as possible. Usually, you don't usually don't do it in the middle of a cycle. It's like whether or not do they continue on to the next cycle, and it, it very rarely happens that that's the case. But uh, they also have feedback on their coaches that comes back on it. So that's also one. Uh, I my first time coaching, I got feedback on uh, talking too much, which I know that I have that disposition but i didn't think i was doing it with that group but it was coming like oh yeah so that was part of it um and so there was part of, that was kind of fun though because normally with the class you don't get to go back to them but here it was the group so here i was like, like guys apparently i've been talking too much so i'm the asshole and 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 so uh being able to to shut up more uh for them and, and jump into playing with it uh, so that's an example for for one of them like that uh, it will be the case, though, that um, the that part of it is I'm not haven't been too surprised. Not because I think that I'm I'm a sort of golden child of a teacher, but I also know what my strengths and weaknesses tend to be, and that 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 comes out uh, for it as well. Uh, and there's also uh, at up, upper levels, it starts being this contrast between um, it's a level five class, and there are people who are still evaluating on improv of. I get to be ridiculous and follow my joy versus I'm learning to be a strong performer uh, from that. And then there is sometimes the evaluation is sort of you can't be all things to all people. So what is expected for you to be in this class? And so that becomes part of it as well. Uh, so what are you what do you what have you done? What are you doing to continue honing your teaching skill? I mean, teaching is also an art mm-hmm. uh, and you're ever evolving as well. So uh, what, if anything, are you doing to um, continue that journey? Uh, I'm a sucker for workshops. I take workshops <laughs> all the time. And at this point, um, it is not at all, it is growing increasingly. I, more often than not, I will have been doing improv longer than many of the people I'm taking workshops from. And I don't care. Like, that's not, uh, uh, that's, that's awesome. And uh, if I leave a workshop with just, either one new exercise or more likely it's one new, like that was a great way to frame that. That's incredibly useful for it. So I'm just constantly looking for good stuff to poach for what I'm teaching and in particular good ways to, to explain things and whatnot. So when you sit in in a workshop, cause I'm also a sucker for workshops and uh-huh. I also love taking the workshops from someone who is like the local person from the theater that I don't have never had an opportunity to, even be with yet do you find you put your teacher hat on more to look for things or your performer hat on more uh it depends on the workshop that it's um if it's i start with my learner hat like that's where i am and if i suddenly realize like nope i've done this exercise or then it's the teacher hat and really it, it's kind of both going at at once from it so i don't go into a workshop going just I'm not here. I'm just here to poach ideas for teaching. I'm not. I'm not. I'm like. I'm not like the rest of the. I'm not thinking in those terms. Like I. I want to get better at being an improviser, and so that that that's always going on for me. And I want to be better as a teacher. So yeah. I want to do some scenarios before we like talk about um, advice for new teachers and coaches and stuff. Sure. Because I feel like there's some scenarios that. Uh, you know, sort of like we see these students often mm-hmm. sort of like we know like the students, the you know, people who've been playing for a couple of years are moody right. teenagers kind of thing. So I kind of want to go through some scenarios and then um, would love to hear like how you approach Got the it. students. I also I realize I have one philosophy as a teacher and a yes. coach that I, I mean, that, that I that is unique to me that I think is important. And um, one thing I tell troops, uh, it was a um I first did this with a, a Herald team, Madeline, that I got a cast up. It was sort of the, one of the first time I got this troupe. And they were extraordinarily good improvisers who were on it. I let, it was hands down sort of the, the best raw group of improvisers and experience. Many people have been performing for years and years already. Um, and I got to sort of go beyond just, 
getting them competent to like where like artistically uh, where to go for it. And uh, I got to sort of introduce what I thought was the right thing, but I knew it would be difficult, which is in level one uh, and what people sort of think of their first improv experience, you have new exercises every time that are constantly coming up. Um, you're constantly finding these new playful ways to do that. And that while that's great for getting people to love improv and being fun, it was counter to almost every other kind of training for human performance that we do, which is we find really core skills that build basic competence and we run them over and over again. You don't go to the gym and do uh, different exercises, completely different every single time you go to the gym, a new experience. And so I explained that at the end of the day, I think that what makes good experienced improvisers experienced is that they've they've come into good habits, either because they've learned them or because audiences will teach them for you. That it's just sort of when you make bad moves, you get bad you get bad feedback. When you do good improv, you get good feedback. And so what I wanted to do was build habits and that meant repetition. So I sort of asked the group for permission, like, I think we're doing this wrong. And so I think I'd actually like to some of these weeks it's going to look multiple weeks, the exact same exercises. And I'm self-conscious because you're going to think, I don't want you to think that I'm being lazy. Like I can come up with entirely new exercises, but these are the ones I think work the best. And I really want to keep drilling until they become easy to you when it, and be able to do that. And so I, they're like, yep, we're with you. We're fine. And so I did that and it worked wonderfully. And now I just, I still give a, I don't ask for permission, but I let them know like, Hey, here's something that I do. Like if you if you really want me to switch it up every week, I can do that. But this is, I think, what's going to help you get good. So for, forgive me and know that it's for a reason when I'm running the same exercise over and over again. And when I run exercises and drills longer than they might be used to running as a way to do that. And so this idea of sort of repetition and building habit and getting exercises to the point of them being easy, uh, more like that, is something that is, for me... Um, is a coaching philosophy. I think people learn best that way, but I think it takes extra buy-in and improv because we're originally taught the whole idea of every week is something new uh, and that that's what it's about. Yeah. Um, I love that. Uh, I actually, starting in level one personally, same warm-ups, like so same three warm-ups, then a new one. Uh-huh. But this way we do the same warm-ups. And then I start, I have scenic exercises, same two scenic exercises before introducing a new one. I'm yep. a huge repetition, habit building. I, I love, I love that. Um, hopefully. Okay. Scenario. Of- Sorry. That yeah, we wanted to, yeah, I wanted scenarios. to, like, Let's do that. I realized so, like, Hey, this is something that actually is right, like, right. how so, I, how I play differently as a, as a coach. Office. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we all have a student who it's not just like we had talked about earlier, like, Oh, the student's not ready for that kind of note or that kind of approach yet. But the one who's just consistently resistant to the feedback and to the notes. You know, wants to, to debate it. Uh, I, when I'm coaching versus when I'm teaching, when I'm coaching, I will very much say, look, I'm an asshole, but here's what I need you to do. Shut up, take the note, let's move on. And then later on, if you need to have that discussion or you need to email me, but for now I need you to just shut up, take the note. But in class, it's a bit of a different experience. Yep. So, so how do you handle students who are consistently just resistant to this and want to constantly defend. I think one thing I introduced is, so there, there, this is time for a meta skill, that there's a skill in the performing arts of learning to take a note. And, and, I, and again, I like to put my ass like, I have heard notes that are terrible and wrong. Like, I, I was here, I have to, the, uh, here's the stupidest note I ever got. I remember that uh, we were doing a, a scene where uh, it was on the, we're roughly where we came in and we were in the second of three tag outs and it was a very funny tag out and the, but we had no idea what we were going to do before or, or actually it wasn't tag it was a, a, a wipe but then a, it was a run and at some point they said no they probably should have saved that for the third and we remember looking like we had no idea how could we know what we were going to do but so it was like it was a terrible note it was a terrible note but still this idea of like so that happened so I want to acknowledge I might be giving the most terrible note because I don't think the person who gave me the note thought it was the most terrible note in the world but so that happens. So I might be wrong, but there's this skill of take the note of let go, you know, just an improv where we're learning to let go of judgment of our scene partner's line and play with it. Then you can judge afterwards, take the note, treat it as a gift, try it and see how it goes. And so that one is just look, taking a note is a skill. So try it and go with it. Um, the other that I often explain is that 
there's not a single path up the mountain. And so what internally works for me may not work for you, but try it to see if it, if it does work because otherwise you'll never know. Sort of think about it as one of those, um, those shows where they're trying to, what was it? There was some fashion show where I'm, this is part of my terrible, like fun teaching thing where I'll try to reference something that I won't fully know. And then people have to guess what it is I'm trying to reference, uh, but where they tried to get people to try to change their wardrobe. They had to throw out everything they were wearing and get new clothes. Um, uh, is it that the one, what not to wear? Is that the what one? not to wear? Right. This is, uh, this, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what not to wear. And, uh, for that, that, uh, think of it like this, where you're just going to try it and see it. It may not work, but you'll never know if you don't try it. You'll just keep getting, you want to do different if you want to do improv that's better, you're going to have to do improv that's different than how you're currently doing it. So try something different. Maybe this will be the different that makes it better. Maybe not. But either way, you're practicing doing something different from your habits. So doing it like cool. that. Uh, sorry about the doors. We're that's fine. Boys. <laughs> um, the student who is just chronically late and which will have an impact on the rest of the class. Yep. Um, so how are you handling that student? If they're more than 15 minutes late, it counts uh, as an uh, absence or at least half an absence and two absences and you don't continue the class. So, hey, great. So I you don't have make a, a policy, but there you go. So that's Right. So great. So you have a policy it, that you are able to have a policy that you can go back on that if you're X amount late, you yep. not. Yep. Great. Great. I think it comes up in teaching and also it's because of uh, my work is doing a, being a mediator beforehand. This idea of front end load the process. Mm-hmm. It is a million times easier to set expectations at the beginning to fall back on than it is at the end, particularly if there's expectations that you know that people struggle with, like, hey, I know that, you know, that this is going to be a tough thing that comes up to let them know, yep, this is where people struggle, and sometimes they don't, aren't able to, like, let them know up front that, what, what your expectations are and what the consequences of not meeting those expectations are. Um, we talked a little bit about the racism and sexism um, and, and students who are, a lot of times I, students whether it's part of just their process of being able to say yes and and stuff, some of them I feel like come to class to hit on other people and find dates. I would say a significant number of people (laughs) in level one, like on reasons why you take improv, uh, I would like to meet new people, slash, 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 that I might be able to date. I think like that that comes in there. Uh, So, yeah. But that's different from doing it in class on it like that. Uh, So... um, I don't know if I'm in lucky, but I've had very few scenarios where there's been creeping in class of folks like that. I would say the most, the one clear one is I, um, at the beginning, I say uh, for for classes and, uh, hey, I want to do email addresses for folks, for folks like that. Um, sometimes people want to be able to reach out to each other to be able to arrange to go into show, something like that. So I'd like to be able to CC instead of BCC the whole class. But if I'm going to do that, uh, there's the, the email you enrolled with. But if you want to use a different email or something, the one that's going to share for the group, let me know. Or you don't want to be in that. You want that to be BCC'd, let me know. So I set that up uh, as one thing to do ahead of time. Uh, and uh, for just to make it extra challenging to be a, a creeper if someone's had bad experiences with that. Uh, and then to also let them know if at any point that they do feel like if, if you feel uncomfortable in, in the class for any reason to contact me, to let them know up front that that's the case, that they don't feel awkward. Like, is this something that I can talk to the instructor about, that that's the case for it as well? Uh, and then um, part of like the physical contact of like, nope, that that's not part of it. Um, and yeah, so okay. as ways to, to do that. Um. How are you facilitating conversations about diversity uh, on stage in improv? I mean, we know that historically improv has leaned white males on stage and um, that there's been obviously a lot of issues with just a lot of different things with people of color, with women, that kind of stuff. Um, Are you facilitating those conversations in your classroom as they come up? Do you find that it's a conversation you feel needs to be happening um, the, what, yeah. I do my my weird uh, bias towards having people not endow scene partners with genders and races other than themselves uh, the, the, is um, one way that it just kind of it brings it up conveniently for me. And then if people want to talk about it more, that we then go into it uh, for that. 
So that's one place that, that comes up. Uh, if it ever comes up, I like to tell stories where people are expecting like, oh, there's this difference on gender. I often relate the story that um, for a long time, it wasn't unusual to see a troop that was uh, um, all guys and one woman. And, the, and like, oh, yeah, that's that's not a big deal. And then for one year, uh, one of the troops I played on, I was the only guy with uh, a group of women on it. And I was, it came up, uh, I think, four different times where people had asked, is John gay as part of it? And I'm like, I'm not, but why? I, even if I was, I, I mean, I don't mind you asking, but why is that coming up? Coming up? Like, well, you're only, like, do you ask if there's one woman on a troop? Do you ask if she's a lesbian? Like, no, that there's like, what's considered the politics of what's considered normal and what gets people's attention itself points at where privilege is and things like that. So it's a one way to say like, yeah, no, there's like, there is a difference in being able to share that. And then I also uh, like to share the fact that, um, uh, that, uh, most oh, this, we just, uh, lost player, but, uh, for most of the time I get to play on a troop of which everyone's over 40 is one of the troops I play on. And that's wonderful. Uh, for the long time I was playing on no troops that didn't have, uh, at least one or two people of color on it, and that, that I benefited from that. Uh, two of the troops I play on have transgender people, different uh, different uh, folks uh, for those. Um, that uh, I don't think I've ever been on a class in, in a troop where there wasn't uh, someone uh, who is gay, lesbian, or bisexual on uh, there, and that sort of and that diversity has mattered in troops, and that that's really useful uh, for it, and that and that I that I'm a better improviser for it. Right. Uh, so yeah. I would love to hear about um, any advice you have for someone wanting to be a coach or teacher and um, if you have any people who inspired you and any kind of sort of final thoughts on teaching in general. Sure. Um, So let's see, for a teacher and uh, for folks that inspired me and thoughts, I think one thing that's peculiar, and I don't know if it's avoidable or not, is that people often start coaching before they start teaching. And for me, coaching is a much, uh, it takes more of my skill than teaching does because coaching tends to be far more bespoke where I not only, uh, I'm not, I'm not going in, uh, with full lesson plans or generally there, but I'm, I'm more actively changing it to what I see in front of me. And it matters that I have this large repertory of exercises. I know that if I see this thing going awry, here's what I know to help work on it, both as an individual and as a troop as a whole, that that takes a lot more of my expertise than a class where I'm sort of given, here's a recipe to at least start from and then riff off of to make adjustments for where the class is at. Um, I know that sometimes, though, that training programs, if you haven't been coaching a while, they won't let you, that's part of what's being let in. But again, that I think coaching is a lot more difficult than people realize for it. I think that also recognizing that teaching is a skill in and of itself. I think training programs are wise when they have a real preferential treatment to people that have teaching experience in any field whatsoever, that that's really beneficial, that there are a lot of skills around uh, how do you teach that are transferable to improv and that are really useful like that. And that there's definitely cases, people who are wonderful improvisers who are rotten teachers and vice versa. So that's that's part of it as well. Uh, I still... uh, I don't think I'm too shabby as an improviser, but I still think I'm a much better teacher because I've been teaching a lot longer than I've been improvising uh, from it, so that that's part of it. Uh, as for folks who inspired me, Armando Diaz, I remember, was a huge inspiration because for a while I was going to some workshops, particularly if I'd be going up taking workshops at the Del Close Marathon, and some of the instructors that were up there were clearly just had seen too much fucking bad improv. Like you could just tell like that. And they just had this look like, oh my fucking God. And I get that. I act, I I totally get that, that I've seen this bad scene a million times before. And honestly, I could, I know where it's going to go. I could stop watching and whatever, but that's, that doesn't help. And I watched as Armando who had been doing improv forever sat and could not have been kinder and gentler and more thoughtful about just the right note to give um, to really be able to do that. And what he was really gifted at that I don't think people fully appreciate is I love a good note where if you do this one thing, try this one thing, it has all these trickle-down effects as a result that here's this one, if you try doing this one thing, it has all these enormous things that will follow suit. And he had these great sort of primary notes that... It was just the right thing. So 
that to me was an enormous inspiration uh, for that sort of an aspirational goal to be able to get as a teacher uh, and for that. Um, and, and so that's sort of the instructor who really sort of is the gold standard. And then there's all sorts of other instructors I can think of who are really good at uh, bringing it. Um, uh, Brian O'Connell uh, is definitely uh, one who I appreciate the being very open about this idea of like, look, I treat this like an art. I understand that for many, this is a fun hobby and that is great and it's awesome, but I'm going to teach this like an art. And so it's going to be tough and I'm going to be open about it. And, and here's why. And I think he does that very well about, uh, being able to balance the whole, I'm going to be tough, but I'm going to, here's the reason why. And to know that it's not just, uh, some terrible cliche of the, of arts instruction where people, it seems like the person teaching is getting a ego stroke out of just being a maniacal dictator, uh, and doing that. So, uh, being able to, to get out of that. So those are, those are, Yeah. Uh, where can people find you online and all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, they can find me at witdc.org as one of the folks who worked there, as one of the uh, senior instructors at WIT and Washington Prof Theater. And also uh, I run the WIT at Work, the corporate applied corporate training program. I love plugging WIT because I feel like it's the largest improv theater people don't know about. Uh, just by a level of scale, I think we're running like 15 or so sections of level one right now or more. It's I think under UCB, IO, and Second City, by, by terms of, of number of students, like we have one of the largest training centers in the U.S., which I love. Um, but it's still this, we have this uh, bias towards Chicago, New York, and L.A. as being subs. When actually, I, I'd honestly, if you could drop me in, Aust- in either Austin, D.C., or Boston as examples of like places of, of huge scenes with a rich diversity of teachers and approaches, like any day, and other areas as well. But like just, I think that... Uh, we should uh, ex- expand that. We need more second cities, essentially, which how Chicago got that in the first place uh, for that. Anyway, sorry, witdc.org. Also, uh, bigimprov.org, because I perform at Baltimore, with Baltimore Improv Group and dearly love. They actually perform more uh, with special projects in big than I do in D.C., and so being able to do that. So those are the two places for there. And the main ensembles I'm on are King B at Wit and Lecker at, in Baltimore. And I love being able to do that. Baltimore has... Another thing I like about some small scenes, uh, in some scenes, people uh, shed experienced improvisers to areas all, all the time. So in two years, if someone loves improv, they're off to New York or L.A. or Chicago, which is unfortunate. And Baltimore has this wonderful thing where people stick around. Every now and then they go around. But it means that in Lecker, uh, I'm in a group where most people have been improvising for 10 or more years. And, that whole ensemble, and it's, it's rare to be able to find ensembles like that. And I love that about the community there. So, yep. So that's where you can find me online.